you. So open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians. Over the, the past two weeks, we've been looking at really the, the birth, the very beginning of the church there in Ephesus. Um, we've looked at its, its growth, its life, and then what seems to be its apparent death. Um, we see Jesus in Revelation giving a very stark warning to the church there in Ephesus that, hey, guys, repent and do what you did at first, or else I'm going to take your lampstand away. And so, it, we, we don't hear anything else from Ephesus, at, or the, the church at Ephesus after that, so, and today it's just an, it, it's a historic site, so um, obvious that the church did have its lampstand removed. All right, so we've been looking at all of that from, a, from an aerial view, up 30,000 feet, kind of getting the full span of everything that's been taking place. And today we're going to kind of begin getting back down to the ground level and, and looking at, you know, what's going on specifically in the letter itself. We'll kind of begin our journey through the text. Now, I know how I'm wired, and, and I think you're probably similar to this, at least most people are is that we, we're quick to jump into things without always paying close attention to, to what's being said or what's being written at the, at the beginning of something. I mean, we, we do that with books, right? How many of you, whenever you go buy a book at the bookstore, you get it on your Kindle, how many of you read the preface? Okay, that's not the majority. Uh, how, do any of you skip the introduction? Just be honest, I skip the introduction. Anybody? A few of you? Yeah, because you're like, well, the author's just in the introduction. He's just kind of giving you a, a, a summation of everything he's going to talk about. Let me just get to what he's actually talking about. And, and so we're bound to do that oftentimes, even whenever it comes to Scripture itself. We, we just want to get to the heart of it. Get, let me get to the meat of the matter. But, but surely the introduction is there for a reason, right? I mean, the author has a, a purpose behind it. Why would he take the time to prepare it and write it? It's not just, you know, something I'm trying to fill up space, uh, you know, on the paper, add more pages to the book. It's not, oh, I'm trying to get my word count to a certain number. Uh, that's not what's going on here. The author is setting the tone for what he or she is going to say in the book. Beginning to build expectations. He's, he's going to tell you what he or she is going to tell you in the following chapters. But it's not, as I said, it's not in detail. It's a summation. And that's what Paul is doing with the first two verses that we find in Ephesians. He's introducing himself. He's establishing his authority to say what he's about to say. And, and then he speaks a blessing on them, which is in, in essence a summation of the gospel that he is preaching and that he's been teaching to them. Remember, he stayed in Ephesus for a couple years preaching and teaching. So, let's pray and then we'll jump into the first couple verses here. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear what you are teaching through these first two verses that Paul has written. God, we know that they are inspired God, you gave these very words to Paul, so Father, help us to take serious what you say, Father, through these two verses, and not just to quickly skim over something, or to jump through it so we can get on to the, what we think are the weightier matters. So help us see clearly, quicken our hearts, God, reveal sin in our life, help us then, God, by your grace, to repent of that, 
and to trust and believe in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 2. Read along with me if you like. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read those two verses, our tendency is just, it's to skim, right? Let me just, Paul's just saying, hey, here, here, it's just me, and this is who I am, you know, grace and peace to you, let's get to it. That's, that's what we do, right? Let me get on to the, the, the deep stuff that, that, that Paul's going to say, and and, and so even sometimes, we, we, at best, we skim it. At worst, we just ignore it. But these aren't throwaway verses. Okay? These are important. Even the, as we're reading, especially if you're reading through Old Testament books and you get to genealogies, and if we're honest, those get weighty, right? We're like, I, I can't even say those names. But they're there for a reason. They're there for a purpose. Those aren't just words thrown in. So we need to pay attention to what God is teaching us through these words. All right, so notice how Paul begins in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, I realize being here in the South, we oftentimes take for granted that everyone knows what and whom we are talking about in relation to biblical stories and texts. We just take that for granted, right? But, but that's not something that we can do anymore because we live in a culture that is becoming less and less biblically literate so when you're in conversation with someone, never assume that they just know that. It's just different today than it used to be, and, and it's becoming less and less so. We were talking about it, I think, was it, was it in our Gospel Community Wednesday night? We were talking about the study that was recently released about the state of, of, of the church, state of theology, and what people believe now. And it's unbelievable how, how much credence, basically, how much stock people actually put in God's Word. It's, it's diminishing. And so as we diminish that, guess what? Even people who, in the South here, where we grew up hearing those stories, I, I remember growing up, oh, it's such a different day back then. I remember in elementary school, we had the Bible ladies. Did any of you have Bible ladies that came to you? Anybody remember that? It's just, just us? Just hoping I were the only two that remember that. We had, there were, there were some older ladies that would come to the school. I forget how often, I don't, maybe monthly. And they would actually allow them to have class time. They would take class time and they would pull out the flannel boards. You guys remember the flannel boards? Anybody remember flannel boards? Yeah, I, I see my grandmother shaking her head. She remembers those. So it's just me, you, and Granny. That's, that's all that remember flannel boards. Oh, Ariana remembers flannel boards. So they would pull them out and they would put all the, 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 these characters on there. And you would see them and... Uh, they would tell the stories of, of you know, the, all the, the Old Testament stories that we, we grew up learning and reinforcing that. You, you don't get that today. So these were kids that, you know, oftentimes perhaps they didn't grow up in church, but they were still exposed to that. So they knew these stories, even though they may not have believed them, they understood them to some degree. The culture's becoming less and less biblically literate. They don't know these people. They don't understand who they are, what they've done. So never assume that in a conversation that, oh, they know what I'm talking about. So plus, plus those of us who may know certain particulars about those stories, it, it does us well to be reminded of them often. 
let's, let's just stop here where we are in Ephesians and just look. Who, who is this man named Paul? Um, we'll answer this pretty quickly and, and, and pretty simply. Before Paul was an apostle, he, he had a very dark past. He had a very bad history in relation to Christ and his church. On his first encounter, or our first encounter with, with Paul, we, we find him in the book of Acts in chapter 7 at the stoning of Stephen. And Paul is there. He, he's a part of that. And in Acts 7.58, it says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, talking about Stephen, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So before Paul was Paul, he was Saul. And he was a persecutor of Christ's church. I mean, notorious. Everybody knew about this guy. He was bad news for the church. And on his way to actually do damage to the church, on his way to Damascus, something happened. Something incredible and miraculous took place. Along the road to Damascus, Paul encountered the living Lord Jesus and became a believer. You can read that account in Acts 9. We won't take time to read that entire account. But just read through it. Uh, it, it, even if you say, well, I, I know that story, read it again. It's good. It's great to remind ourselves of some of those truths. And so along the way, he became a believer. And, and as we look at God's Word in Acts 9, other historical events, they prove that, that Saul, who eventually then became Paul, was very much a chosen instrument of Christ to carry the gospel to the nations. So that being the case, he describes himself to the church at Ephesus as an apostle. What does that mean? Well, simply, the apostles in the context of the New Testament and the early church were those who had been with Jesus and then sent out by Jesus to preach the gospel. Right, you have the 11, 11 of the original disciples that are doing that. Judas, of course... Judas is not with them anymore. Things didn't go so well with Judas. And so in Acts 1, they're, they're wanting to replace that, so they get back to their number of 12, and they cast lots for that. And Christ sets aside Matthias, and he had been with them from the beginning, so he had seen everything as well. He just wasn't one of the original 12, so they're back up to their number 12 there. And, and all of them had been with Jesus. But then here comes this guy named Paul. How did, how did he become an apostle? I mean, the others had been with Jesus. They had walked with him. They had learned from him in person. They saw the resurrected Christ. Well, so had Paul. Paul did as well on the road to Damascus. Christ appeared to him there on the road, and he commissioned him, and he sent him out to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul himself encounters the living Lord Jesus. And remember, it was a blinding experience for Paul. Um, and so when, when Paul is writing and speaking to these churches, he's doing so as one with authority. He's not just some guy saying, hey, let me, I see your issues there, let me straighten you out. Okay? He is writing as a person with authority from Christ to do so. Not just one who just, you know, has an opinion. He is speaking to the church 
from the position of authority given to him by Christ. Now, this isn't Paul bragging and saying, look at me, I'm Mr. Apostle, all right? It's impossible to brag and be prideful when you're constantly gazing at Christ and his cross. That's a great antidote to pride, isn't it? Just to meditate on the cross, to meditate on Christ and the gospel. You don't feel so, so much like you're it. What Paul is saying is that I am not my own. My words are not my own. They all belong to Christ. He points out that he is an apostle by the will of God. So he's not in this position and speaking to them based on, on who he is, what, what he thinks, or what he has accomplished. But rather, he is speaking, thinking, acting on behalf of Christ because of what Christ has done, what Christ has accomplished, and what Christ is now doing because God is still doing work actively. So in essence, whenever he says that, hey, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he's saying, I'm just, I'm obsessed by and I am controlled by Jesus. I'm, that's just all I'm about. That's all I think about. That's all I want to talk about is Jesus. And that's what our lives should be like as well. And just pause to think about that for a minute. Do we see our life? Do we see our identity based on Christ, His accomplishments, His will, or our own? I mean, how often do we begin to address people and say, well, well let me tell you why you should listen to me. Let me tell you why. At the heart of that is pride. We, we want people to look at us and to be impressed. Oh, I struggle with this greatly. I and mean, if we're just going to be honest, be transparent, I struggle with that. I want people to be impressed. I want people to think well of me. We, we, we want people to think we have authority because of the things we do or because of the things we know. Because we're impressed with ourselves, and we want others to be as well. We look at what we've accomplished. We look at what we know. We look in the mirror and think, nah, I'm impressed with myself. And so we expect others to be impressed as well. You see, that's difficult for us. You know, many of you know I'm, 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 I'm working a, a, a side job as well um, and in the business world and it's um i'm beginning to learn that, that the main reason god's doing this with me is sanctification he's growing he's using this to humble me in ways i didn't know that i was struggling in and um, he's making things very clear and and i'm learning how much stock i put into being that person that always is in the know that person that has all the answers, the person that does this right. Oh, you have an issue? You need to talk to him. He can solve that for you. And I'm beginning to get a taste of, of how much I put stock and find my identity in what I do, what I've accomplished, not so much in just who I am in Jesus. You see, we shouldn't expect people to listen to us because of what we've done or because of what we know, but because of who we know and who we belong to. That's the road that Paul took. He said, you should listen 
to me and what I'm saying here, not based on me, but based on who Christ is. These are his words to you. Hear them, heed them, obey them. And, and what if in, instead of constantly giving our opinion, we gave each other the word of God? That's how we responded. We just, we, you know what God's word says about that. Now, sometimes we don't like that, do we? If somebody, we're asking somebody, something, well, Scripture says, why don't, why don't we, whenever somebody says it, we're like, ah, oh, oh, there they go again. We don't like it because it's confronting us with truth about who we are and what we're putting our trust in, what we're believing. And, and so it's like a bat upside our head. It's like, hey, wake up, buddy. Look at what you're putting your, your worth in, your, your life in. You see, as we give people God's word, we're really giving them life. We're really giving them what they need. And we will begin doing that when Christ becomes our identity, when we realize that he is our all. All of a sudden, my opinion really doesn't matter. Because I, I, and I have plenty of opinions. Those of you who've been around me, you know that. I'm never short of an opinion. Have one on just about everything. Doesn't mean it's right. But God's word, always right. Always. And the more time we spend in God's word, the more then that begins to affect our opinions. And it begins to get in there. And so then our opinions all of a sudden start sounding more biblical. And so as we speak, we're speaking God's word into people's lives. That happens as we marinate in the word of God. The more time we spend there, the more that we realize Christ is our all. The more we realize Christ is our all, the more we will want to spend time there. Just the cycle gets going. I'm not sure who said this. It's such an awesome statement. Reading scriptures like collecting pollen. Meditating on it is like making honey. Isn't that good? Reading scripture is like collecting pollen. Meditating on it is like making honey. I don't know who said that. I wish I had, but I didn't. Um, but I'm great at reading what people say and telling you. So, so may, may God help us to, to be like bees that gather pollen and make honey when it comes to spending time in his word and meditating upon it. And, and may the sweetness then of his life, of Jesus' life, and his words cause all those in our life to be drawn to the goodness of our Lord. It was, what does scripture say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you ever tasted honey, it's good, especially, especially honey right off the comb. It's so good. So let's go collect. Let's spend time collecting God's word, but then let's meditate on it. Let's make honey. And, and watch what begins to happen in our lives as that works itself out. And one more note here about Paul mentioning the will of God. When Christ becomes our identity... His will becomes our will. His will becomes our will. As God grows us in the process of sanctification and holiness, our wants, our desires become more and more reflective of His wants and desires. It's not all of a sudden sprinkling Jesus on what we want to do. It's stopping and going, Jesus, what do you want to do? And then that's what my life becomes about, following him, doing what he desires. We see our life, our family, our job, our hobbies as avenues, relationships, and opportunities to serve him and to advance the gospel. 
See, over, over time, as that begins to work itself out in our hearts and minds, over time, we will stop seeing just what the pastors do as ministry and start seeing what I'm doing, what I'm doing in my job daily as ministry. We, we stop seeing and believing that to serve Christ with our lives that we have to serve in this full-time ministry position. We start seeing and using what we do in the office or job site or classroom or home or wherever we are as a place of ministry and as an opportunity to advance the gospel. Here's one of the great benefits with what I'm doing in addition to Redeemer. Like I told you, it's, it's, you know, I'm, 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 in, I'm in businesses throughout the week. I see people, meet people, get to hang out with people, which is a great thing because it is an opportunity. I get, I get to engage people. Putting myself in that environment, I'm learning something. Even in a place that is churched, the gospel will shine very bright in this city if you will allow it. It's been amazing to me. I may meet nice people, and I do meet a lot of nice people, but I meet people who I know they're a part of church, churches around here, but where this goodness that we were talking about of God doesn't seem to be very real in those places. And whenever we collectively begin to see that what we do every day, this isn't just a job so then I can go do ministry some other place. When we begin to see our job as ministry, when we begin to see where we work as a place to advance the gospel, all of a sudden the dynamic changes how we approach every day in the office, every day in the field, every day with the individuals that we come in contact with. It changes radically. And God's opening my eyes to some of these truths. You want to make a difference? Just see it as that. This isn't something to trudge through. Work's not a bad thing. Work's a good thing. It's a very good thing. God blessed that. He gave us work. Now, we also know because of sin, God cursed the ground, so it's going to make it a little bit harder to do, but work's a good thing. So, so what, what difference would it make where you work, the people that you're around every day, if you got up Monday morning, which everybody knows, we love Monday mornings, right? Fired up. Got a whole week in front of me. Excited, right? Probably not. But what if you were? What if you were? What if you get up in the morning and you go, I have an opportunity today for God to use me to advance His gospel in my office, out there in the field amongst the people that I'm working with. You think you would approach your day differently? I think you would. I think you would expect things to happen. I think you would look for opportunities in conversation to speak God's word to those people. I think it would radically change where you work, and I think it would radically change the dynamic of the relationships you have, and I think you would quickly begin to see fruit happening. Does that mean all of a sudden everybody where you work, they're going to get saved? No. Might. It might, but it may not. But here's what will happen. God will use that to advance his gospel. So let's do that, okay? So instead of us laying down tonight with dread of Monday morning coming, let's lay down tonight with excitement and anticipation of what God is going to do in the week ahead. All right, moving on. Paul mentions the recipients of the letter in verse 1. 
So he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Seriously? Saints? I mean, we, we just spent two weeks talking about these people. They got in trouble, right? They weren't doing everything they should be doing. Saints? I mean, surely the believers there weren't saints, were they? I mean, that, that term, that's designated for, for those who are selfless, those who are next to perfect. Well, at least that's the way we view it through human eyes. But in God's kingdom, according to His order, all Christians are saints. You are a saint. But we don't think of ourselves that way, do we? I go, oh, if you just knew. Oh, if you knew. Well, sure, I do know. Because I'm just like you. See, I'm sinful too. But here's what I know. I've been changed. My identity is no longer one of sin, but one of righteousness. We are now saints. You see, we're all saints, not because, just like the people there in Ephesus, they were, they were saints not because of their perfection or, or our perfection. We know that doesn't exist. We don't attain perfection, but because of Christ and His perfection. We are saints because we have been brought into a relationship with the Father through Jesus. didn't have a whole lot to do with us, did it? Jesus did that. He accomplished that. So like the saints at Ephesus, we too have been set apart for Him and His service as the people of His own possession. We are His and He is ours. Paul also describes them as faithful in Christ. Faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, He's not making a distinction between those that are faithful and those that are not within the church itself. That's not what he's doing. He's looking at the church as a whole. Were there some that were unfaithful? Well, sure. Absolutely. Are there those in the church today that are unfaithful? You better believe it. But Paul is looking at the church with all of its imperfections, with all of its failings, and he sees them as faithful. Holy saints of God. That's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, it truthfully is. It's not unusual to see Paul address his letters to the saints. I mean, we see that in many of them. So we can derive from that that he's not referring to some advanced level of holiness. Like, okay, well, you're here. You're a novice, a pure saint, and we work our way there. It doesn't work that way. You, when you become a believer, guess what? You're a saint. At the moment you believe the gospel and God radically transforms us, we're a saint of God. That's pretty awesome. All right, So we've been set apart by Christ from the world for God. Don't, don't miss that Paul also points out that they are faithful in Christ. It is only in and through Christ that we find our identity, our being, and, and then move from that we begin to understand what we're to do. So we understand who we are that informs then what we are to do and is the gospel and the spirit of God that empowers us to accomplish this work. So here's who we are. Because of who we are, here's what we do. And we're able to do that because he gives us his spirit to empower us to do that. It's not just that, okay, I want you to go do that and then sends us out on our own. We, we couldn't accomplish that. He says, okay, here's who you are. And because of who you are, there are expectations, things you need to do. But, oh, by the way, here's everything you need to do to accomplish that. All right. Um, 
I, I hope all that, that makes it pretty clear here what Paul is saying to the recipients of the letter and, and what those implications are for us corporately and also us individually. Um, and be encouraged by that to know that you're a saint of God. Not because of what you do, not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done in your life. All right, let's move on to, to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. All right, if, if, again, if you were to look at the beginning of, of each of Paul's letters, we would find him greeting each church or, or person in this way. He says, grace to you and peace from God. Now, that just, okay, well, that's just customary greeting. That's just what Paul's doing. It's just this generic salutation. It's something that we could just, just pass over quickly. But, but Paul is very precise and purposeful in everything he says, so let's just not assume that he's just giving some throw-by greeting, like, hey, man, how you doing? That's not what he's doing. Because we say that, we really don't mean that, right? We say, hey, we'll, we'll meet people, strangers. Hey, man, how you doing? We don't mean that. We really don't. But Paul... When he says grace to you and peace, he means it. There's, there's purpose behind the words that he's giving us here. All right? So why begin with the words grace and peace? Why start his letters that way? Because each time he says it, he is giving a brief summation of the gospel. He's just giving the people the gospel at the beginning, gives them gospel through the letter and at the end of the letter. It's just gospel, gospel, gospel. Grace and peace, summation of the gospel. I think sometimes we forget how much we need God's grace. Now, some of you may think, oh, no, I know. I know I need God's grace. Well, just hang with me. While we probably would all admit, sitting here today, we would say, yes, I know that I need it. We don't typically function like we need it. We would... Remember we talked about some time back how we would we confessionally say things, but we functionally live another? Confessionally, we would all say, oh, I need God's grace. But functionally, we don't live like we need God's grace because we try to be self-made men and self-made women. We, we want to accomplish much in this life. We want to be heralded. We want our names to, to be lifted high. He said, well, I'm not necessarily looking for my name to be in the paper. Well, well, maybe for you, it's just you just want your, your family members to applaud you. You want them to think well of you. Regardless of the forms of our efforts, they serve as a reminder that we are trying to make much of self. And when we are living in such a way, we quickly forget how much we are really in need of God's grace. Trying harder is not the answer. It just doesn't work. It, it's not, let me just do it harder, let me do it better. I mean, there's a time where we do need to work hard. And we need to strive. But the answer for life isn't that. Working harder is not the answer. Think back to, to some of the things that we, we've talked about over the past couple of weeks. Moralism says that we have to do certain things and not do other things in, in order to be good, and, and thereby when we do things or don't do certain things, then we are accepted and we're approved because of our actions. In other words, everything is riding on us, right? Everything is about us. If we do good, then we are good. If we do bad, we're, we're bad. 
That's why we build our identity on these things. We buy into the belief that somehow doing these things or not doing these things or attaining this or accumulating that will somehow bring us peace. It'll bring us freedom. It's, it sounds like a lie that we've read about before, right? You remember the story back in Genesis. Adam and Eve, they bought into a lie that they were somehow shackled. That God was holding something back from them because He had forbidden them from eating the fruit of a certain tree. That they were just missing out. So what did they do? They exchanged their identity that was found in a relationship with Him for an identity that was found in what they could do or not do. Do you see how easy it is to do that? See, in the beginning, it was great. Their identity was in their relationship with God. Until Satan speaks into their ear. And he says, you know what, God, man, God's holding you back. God's holding you back. Look at what he's not letting you experience. He doesn't really love you. If he loved you, he would let you do that. And so, because they entertained that thought, and they began to dwell on that thought, they began to see their identity not as something in relationship to God, but an identity in what they could do or they couldn't do. Didn't work out so well. And the same lie is still going viral all around the world today. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. The, the message of the world and all its concocted religions, ideologies, and philosophies teach us that we have to do it. But the gospel says that Christ has already done it. The gospel isn't this bottom-up approach. It's a top-down approach. It starts up here and it trickles down. It's God taking on human form, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we should have died, and being raised to new life, providing for us real freedom, real life. And this life, this freedom, this gift is not something that we can earn or attain. It's simply a gift, but not a simple gift. It's a costly gift, a cost that required Everything from Christ. A ransom that demanded His body and His blood. And this gift, it's called grace. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8-10, through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not on your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, grace is central to the gospel. It is the roots of the gospel that grows and bears fruit. Paul's message as he described it in Acts 20 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. But what is grace? What is grace? It is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person from an unobligated giver. I've given you that before. Did you catch it? It is unconditional acceptance granted to an undeserving person from an unobligated giver. Those two words describing person and giver are what, much, what give us so much trouble today. We somehow believe that we're deserving. We buy into that belief. 
because we've worked so hard for God or we've worked so hard at being good that God is somehow obligated to us. But that's not grace. That's not grace at all. That's expecting payment for your actions, but we don't really want payment for our actions, not what we actually deserve. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we have earned, death. But Paul didn't stop there in verse 23. He went on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's grace. Granted unconditional acceptance to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Ever heard of, uh, ever heard, or, or perhaps you've been guilty of, of saying God helps those who help themselves? We've talked about that before. It's not true. It's not true. It's unbiblical. It's anti-gospel. You know, man, if you just try harder, God will help you out. No, God says that we're to repent and believe. It's realizing that I, I don't have anything else. I can try harder, but I'm still relying on self. It's not about God helps those who help themselves. That's self-reliance. God is looking for those who will bow before the cross and say, I cannot do anything. I need you. You're my only hope. Not my effort. You. You see, we learn from Scripture that we're unable to help ourselves, that we are hopeless and that we are helpless, and we are in need of rescuing. We don't just need someone to give us instruction and supplies. We need someone to save us, and that's what Jesus did. He rescued us. You see, if I'm in a river drowning, don't throw me the materials I need to build a boat. I'm drowning. I can't do it. I need you to pull me out of the water. And that's what Jesus does. He rescues us. He doesn't just throw us stuff we need to build a boat. He snatches us out of the current and saves us, rescues us. And the gift of salvation, the gift of the gospel is only through grace, not works. It is Christ that has accomplished the work and only Christ that will receive the credit for the work. So if, if anyone understood God's grace, it was Paul. He was a persecutor of the church of Christ. Now he's an apostle of the church of Christ. A man wasn't just a sinful man here, but a, but a man that was trying to destroy the work of Christ and those that follow after him. And then God, God radically saves him and then commissions him, sends him off says, hey, I'm going I'm to use you to take the gospel of grace to the world. Unconditional acceptance to an undeserving person from an unobligated giver. Paul wants the church at Ephesus and each of us sitting here today to deeply understand that grace is the basis, the roots of the whole work of salvation. And because it is this understanding that informs our minds, which in turn determines our actions, doctrine, then practice. So God informs our minds and our hearts, then that leads to the way that we live. The second word that Paul brings attention to is peace. Paul's not just talking about world peace. You know, I just want peace in the world, everything to be good. That's not what he's talking about. This peace is the result, the fruit of God's grace. It's, it's what the gospel brings. So when Paul talks about peace to the Ephesians, he's not wishing they just have spiritual prosperity, nor is he talking about just this internal emotional contentment. That's not what he's talking about. 
The peace he's describing is the peace that now exists between them and God because of the completed work of Christ Jesus and the grace that has been poured to them. And this peace, it's two-dimensional. It is a peace between them and God, which then allows for and produces peace between us, the church of God. So it's two-dimensional. It's, it's man to God and then man to man. Because one of the themes that we see running throughout Ephesians is walking in unity. We can't walk in unity if you're not at peace. And just, just stop and think for a moment how much our world clamors for and searches for peace. We want peace of mind. We want financial peace. We want relational peace. On and on that list goes. And, and, and many of us, we're desperately desiring peace. But the truth is... Real peace can't be found in the things that we attain. True peace is only found in Christ and His grace. And when we finally get this truth, then it changes everything. It is how Paul could be at peace no matter where he was and what he was facing. It is what enabled him to endure no matter the hardship because he was at peace with God. And understanding the grace of God is what enables us to have peace in times of turmoil and trouble and difficulty and disaster. True peace is a result of the gospel. It's a fruit of God's grace. So, so if you've been laboring after that and you've been striving, and look, man, I just got to find peace. Stop looking at all these worldly philosophies, all these things that claim that they're going to bring you peace, and look to Christ. Look to the cross, receive His grace, and believe that He is your all, that, that, that He's my everything. That's when you will live in the freedom and peace that comes from Him and Him alone. It doesn't mean life's rosy. Far from it. Paul lived a hard life. Much harder than one that I can even imagine. And yet his life was marked by peace and grace. What we need is not preaching and teaching about what we are to do or not to do. I mean, we, there are obviously times for that. What we need is more preaching and teaching about who God is and what He has done. And as that informs our head and our hearts, it begins to show itself in how we live and the actions that we take every day and the words that we speak. So may the God of our Father Jesus, uh, our God and Father, Grant to us grace and peace through Jesus Christ for His glory and our good and the advance of His gospel in our lives and our homes and the places we work and our city and ultimately all around the world.